Welcome to AZMCast, the competitive emergency medicine podcast. Our goal on AZMCast is to demonstrate the knowledge, skills, and the approach to help you, the listener, be a top-notch emergency provider. Our panel of emergency specialists will go head-to-head as they navigate a case from the ring down to the workup to the dispo. Panelists will be awarded points for their quick wit, prioritization of tasks, and their clinical application of evidence-based medicine. However, they will lose points for weak arguments that rely on experience-based medicine and the use of banned, unhelpful jargon like gestalt or high index of suspicion or just because I feel like it. The panelists with the most points at the end of each episode will have free reign during the art of EM to rant about whatever aspect of EM is near and dear to their hearts at that given moment. We encourage you, the listener, to pause the podcast at each segment and consider your own approach before going on with the discussion. And our hope is that you will develop a prioritized, evidence-based approach to emergency medicine that will carry you into your next shift. And now, on today's episode, we present for your edutainment, The Ringdown. During the ringdown, points will be awarded for an appropriately focused history and physical with prioritized questions and evidence-based medicine backing. Points will be deducted for weak arguments or missing important elements. An eight-month-old male is brought in by mom for difficulty breathing and cough. But before we get started with the case, let's introduce our panel and give you, the listener, a chance to put yourself in their shoes and consider how you would prepare for this case. Dr. Vivian Ng is an assistant professor of emergency medicine and the fellowship director extraordinaire for medical simulation here at the University of Arizona. Vivian, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me back, Erin. Dr. Jenny Mendelson is a clinical assistant professor of emergency medicine, of pediatrics, and of pediatric critical care and is one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Aaron. Thank you. How do you like that intro? And (laughs) lastly, Dr. Brian Drummond is one of the other smartest people I've ever met in my life, clinical associate professor of emergency medicine, and the ho to my ho-ho. Welcome, Brian. Hi, Aaron. My safe word is infant morphine. Okay, so the case again is an eight-month-old male brought in by mom for difficulty breathing and cough. Temperature is 38.2, heart rate is 178, blood pressure is 135 over 93, respiratory rate an innocuous 20, and the O2 sat is 90% on room air. These are all the vital signs that were taken in triage. So Vivian, I'm going to start with you real quick. Vital signs in triage for an eight-month-old. Looking at those, what jumps out to you? The first thing that jumps out at me is the temperature of 38.2 and the tachycardia of 178. They're actually all wrong, to be perfectly honest, um, for an eight-month-old infant. So the child is febrile, and I want to know how that temperature is taken. They're tachycardic, which could mean a number of things. Are they sick? Are they pissed off? If that tachycardia and that heart rate was measured while they're having a BP cuff around their arm or foot, that's also something to consider. The BP is a little bit high for an eight-month-old, as is the heart rate, and the respiratory rate is a little bit low for an eight-month-old, which is also a little bit concerning. Finally, the O2 sat of 90% on room air, again, is abnormal, um, which could mean some kind of respiratory issue going on, but we all know that those pulse oxes 
Uh, if you're not the a pediatric trained triage nurse, you might have put the wrong pulse ox on the kid. The kid might have acrocyanosis, so that could also be erroneous. So I would absolutely be rechecking all of those in the room in a calmer environment with a parent holding the child and seeing where we are. Much love to all of our triage nurses who do a job that I cannot do. However, all of those vital signs need to be rechecked. They are dynamic, and in a child, there are so many things that can tip them off. Um, so uh, Jenny, if you see these vital signs uh, that are coming up on a patient that's in the lobby, you're trolling for children right now because there's not a whole lot, lot of children coming into the ED. Um, do these vital signs uh, worry you at all? Are you gonna go meet this kid in the room or are you gonna take care of the other stuff that you've got going on and maybe walk by this patient later? Um, well, as Viv said, uh, I don't really believe those vital signs. So I'm at least um, swinging by the room and giving the kid the eyeball test. Um, so uh, getting a few things ready in the room, um, like having a BVM and making sure there's suction set up and monitoring equipment and whatnot. And um, this is a kid I probably sit in the room while they recheck the vital signs um, and then decide whether they need immediate attention or whether I can circle back around. Awesome. And Brian, when you see this in the lobby, you see this kid come in, what's coming to mind? What are your considerations for what this eight month old might have going on so that you can start to develop uh, some of your questions you're going to ask and some of your interventions you might do? Well, it's got to be COVID. Um, and so I COVID. don't know anything else that would be because that's all I diagnose right now. Is correct, especially in the eight month old. That's all they have. Um, they, it actually could be coronavirus, <laughs> just not COVID. <laughs> but um, I think the big things I think about in uh, this age group with kids, um, I'm thinking infection because I have the um, temperature up in addition to the respiratory symptoms. So anywhere from a URI to an asthma flare to a croup, is there a uh, bronchiolitis? Is this a pneumonia? You know, so all of those are kind of like all the infectious respiratory um, things you think about a young kid. Uh, this is not a PE and this is probably not heart failure. Would <laughs> be two things I'm not thinking about uh, in this case. But that's, those are my quick thoughts. Excellent. Yes, definitely not a PE, <clears throat> even with COVID. Everybody's got a PE with COVID except this eight month old. Um, and so as you walk into this room, uh, you see the patient lying on the bed, uh, very still, uh, with six or seven little onesies kind of wrapped around them, which is very, very common uh, to just kind of bundle these kids, uh, even in Tucson, until they can't put their arms down. Uh, so Jenny, as you walk into this room, what's your initial approach to this kid going to be? Um, take those onesies off and see how they're actually breathing. Um, so, I mean, it's really hard to assess the work of breathing in a kid that's fully dressed. Um, so get that kid naked or just down to the diaper and, um, you know, actually see how their chest and, and belly are moving and, and have a listen to them and see what their pulse ox is now and all that. Okay. I think it's interesting that, you know, with the kid laying flat on the back is always a good sign because it takes a couple things off my differential in terms of like a, a big retropharyngeal abscess or something that may have started with a fever difficulty breathing. So, you know, in a sense, you know, we want to see them 
um, how they're breathing, but also in terms of they're not tripoding in front of you. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they're not like turning blue lane back. Those are quick things as you walk in the room that you can pick up too. And just how mad is this kid? You know, you, you saying this kid's laying still with all these people around him. That's probably the most concerning thing I've heard so far. Mm -hmm. So just how interactive are they? Um, and <clears throat> pass the eyeball test as far as this. Excellent. After the onesies come off, I would be rechecking that temperature because it's very possible that this kid read febrile and triage due to environmental factors of the onesies and not a true core temperature. So I would give it a little bit of time for that kid's temp to equilibrate out a little bit and then check it again. The other day when I went to go get my COVID vaccine, they took my temperature beforehand and I was sitting in the car with the seat heater on and I think the warm air blowing on me and I read 99.8. I was like, please still give me this vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Points to everybody uh, for COVID vaccines. Thank you to people who have made COVID vaccines. <laughs> help stay uh, and for those of you that don't know, Matt uh, Berkman and shout out to Matt and Melissa for uh, powering through all of our vaccines. So for all that the three of you do, you get extra points just for having to suffer through everything that we're doing. I'd give myself points, but it doesn't matter. Um, so you walk in and mom is sitting there. You've taken the kids uh, onesie off. And uh, just initially what you see, pediatric assessment triangle, you see a kid who's still laying there fairly still, uh, not spread eagle, but kind of tucked in a little bit, uh, but lying still on the bed, uh, breathing with what seems to be an increased work of breathing and has fairly good color. Uh, so Vivian, what questions do you have for mom? So I, I'm most concerned about the kid's mental status at this point. Um, in, in addition to the pediatric assessment trial, the uh, AVPU mnemonic we like to use, alert, responsive to verbal, responsive to pain, uh, painful, and unresponsive. So I think the first question I would want to know from mom is how long has this kid not been acting themselves? Mm -hmm. And then probably the second question I want to know is how long has this kid had abnormal breathing? So those are the two biggest things right now on the pediatric assessment triangle that makes me the most concerned is their B, work of breathing, um, and their A, their appearance. So those two things combined together would give me an indication of respiratory failure mm -hmm. um, because of the change in mental status. There's a bunch of follow-up questions I would probably ask with regards to that, but I'll definitely hand it off if someone wants to ask about hydration status and all those other things. Nobody else wants to. All right. Well, okay, I'll ask him. Maybe you can get the points then. <laughs> so if I get to ask a full HPI, <laughs> then I want to know about their hydration status and their urine output. Um, whether or not there's anything that would be concerning for hypovolemia like vomiting and diarrhea. I also want to know about their immunizations because if they're behind at eight months old, then they may not have gotten their two month and six month, two, four and six month vaccinations, which would be really important here as far as an infectious cause. Um, and then I really want a lot more details about this kid's work of breathing and what they've observed at home and if there's been any weird noises that they've heard. Um, or, you know, sort of having the parents or mother describe to me what they've been seeing. And again, the mental status, this lying, kid lying still is very concerning. All right. So mom gives you the quick history uh, because you asked so expertly. 
that this is an eight-month-old male brought in for difficulty breathing and cough for the last three days. Fever just started yesterday. Patients had a runny nose, but no vomiting or diarrhea and no COVID contacts, even though we know that everyone has COVID contacts right now. Um, mom says that the patient has not been drinking as much as normal, has had slightly fewer wet diapers than normal, but still having about four a day. Um, normally has more like eight. Uh, patient has a past medical history of eczema and the vaccines are all up to date. Uh, patient is a, a full term normal spontaneous vaginal delivery without complications and has had normal development so far. Uh, mom's been giving acetaminophen, no allergies to anything, and uh, mom has asthma. While you're doing this, you get a chance to look at this kid. And just from your visual inspection, you note this kid has moderate respiratory distress, has subcostal retractions, intercostal retractions, and some seesaw, the beginnings of seesaw respirations, where the belly goes up, chest goes down, belly goes down, chest goes up. So what's the rest of your physical exam going to look like for this kid if you're doing a targeted, focused physical exam? I don't use a stethoscope that often, but this is the time I would use a stethoscope. Um, you know, I, I think respiratory issues, listening for wheezes or striders or crackles or presence of breast sounds. I mean, um, we're still, you know, I'm still thinking that this is an infectious case of some kind, given the runny nose and the fever and things developed over like a three-day period. So, um, you know, just trying to see what the lungs sound like would be the first thing that I would work at. Um, I don't, I'm not worried too much about the belly, the arms, the legs. I would have seen color change looking at them. And other than that, that's it. Listen to the exam, uh, listen to the lungs and go from there. Right. You get to would force crackles on the lungs and scattered wheeze throughout all lung fields. Vivian? Oh, I was going to add, um, a lot of times when I'm doing my focused physical exam on infants, I usually run my hand over their fontanel while I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. Just because that gives me a little bit of indication about their hydration status. Is it bulging? Is it flat? Is it sunken? Um, especially with a kid who has some erroneous vital signs, but read a fever at one point, I still have to consider some other infectious etiology. So I do want to make sure there's not a meningitic concern, especially with this change in mental status as well. Excellent. I um, think that's good for all, all kids that you, I mean, you should put your hands, basically kids are small, especially an eight month old. Um, and I have big hands, so I can cover the body real quick, but I, you know, you're really just pushing and checking everything, um, you know, eliciting, there's no tenderness in the joints, um, you know, no crepitus of the skin or somewhere bump, the fontanelle, the neck. And you can, I think by putting your hands on kids, the parents like that too, because they're, so, oh my gosh, the doctors, you know, you're giving them the show. They're really interested in my child and they're, they're touching and looking at them. So yeah, I agree. I think touching is a, a great idea that I'm, I'm going to clip that uh, quote and take it out of context, Brian. <laughs> kids is great. I'm going to lay hands on a kid too and uh, just a quick cap refill and, you know, just um, a quick assessment of like, are they cool or warm or, um, you know, I mean, it really just takes a second to, to get an assessment of that and um, adds a lot, I think. Before we go on to the workup, uh, Top three things. What do you think is going on with this child, Brian? Uh, I would say URI, pneumonia, bronchiolitis. Those would be my top three. Jenny? Same. <laughs> Dehydration. 
Uh, also same. And when we say year, I probably viral. And in a normal year, I would actually consider it influenza, but that so this year is not a normal year. And we know that rate is super down, <laughs> but all the same. So nobody's saying asthma. Nah, no, well, it could be an asthma exacerbation, but you can't diagnose asthma at this age. Right. So you're well, saying maybe they're have a reactive airway process yeah, exactly. for viral URI. I think that's a possibility because if it's just an asthma exacerbation, that doesn't imply a temperature elevation unless you have an infectious cause of said asthma exacerbation. So, but they're too young to uh, diagnose them as asthma, but you never yeah. know early on what they're going to be. We have a uh, made up term here we call WARI, which is wheezing associated respiratory illness, which is we think you might have asthma, but we're not willing to say it yet. So it's not going to be in your ICD-10 codes. All right, so a couple hypotheticals before we move on. What if this patient were three weeks old and had this exact same presentation? It would become a significantly more invasive diagnostic pathway. Mm -hmm. All right, what if this patient were a X 28-week preemie that came in? Maybe a little small for eight months. I think in those patient, you know, a lot of preemies at that age, you have to think that they have some kind of underlying lung disease um, and damage uh, from lack of surfactant and maturity of the lungs when they were born. So a lot of those kids, you know, it'd be interesting if this was the exact same patient and they never had a breathing issue until now <laughs> after being a 28-week preemie, which is possible. But I would assume if they had some underlying lung disease, they may have bounced to the ER or the hospital sooner. I'm always amazed that yeah, the parents will leave out of a past medical history. Well, other than the <laughs> other than the five months they spent in the NICU, they're totally healthy. <laughs> exactly. And so if if I hear about a history of prematurity, I mean that's a kid that's at higher risk of severe disease. Um, so um, just to sort of gauge how bad his lungs were before, yeah. I mean, you're right that parents tend to leave out all that history unless specifically asked. So I'm like, okay, they were 28 weeker. How long were they in the NICU? How long did they have a breathing tube? How long did they need oxygen? Did they go home on oxygen? You know, so, because sometimes they're like, oh, everything's fine. And then you were like, oh, but they were in the, they had a tube for a month. They were on oxygen for three months and they went home on all these nabs, but now we don't take anything anymore. And you're like, eee. <laughs> Not yet. All right. A uh, couple others. So what if on your exam, this patient had Strider? Oh, Say that again, Brian. I said croup would go up in my differential and foreign body. Those would be the other two. <clears throat> yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, in the setting of fever and tachycardia, croup would be higher, but um, Strider is an upper airway sound. And so form body aspiration is always going to be on the list. So this is a, this is an important point that I kind of will take a time out for is that for medical purposes, wheeze means lungs, lower airways and Strider means trachea, upper airways. Uh, lay people use the term wheeze all the time. Uh, parents say, I heard the kid wheeze and that's fine but that is a layperson use of the term wheeze. When we say wheezing, we're talking about lower airway disease. So if you walk into a room and you say, oh, you can hear the patient wheezing from the door, that's not wheeze. That's more concerning for an upper airway or it's a little bit more phonating, kind of a 
<laughs> um, and that is still a concerning thing, but it's not the same wheeze that we will talk about. I had a patient the other night that we weren't sure if he had COPD or if he had asthma or if he had heart failure or if he just had bad COVID. Turns out it was COVID. Uh, but the patient wasn't wheezing for us, but was struggling to breathe and was having that end expiratory kind of uh, gasp at the end. Um, and so uh, when you think of wheeze, if you're describing it medically, it makes a big difference because of what we're about to do. Um, all right, so we've got our differential diagnoses. We've got our uh, predictions. So with a score of, doc, of Dr. Ng in the lead with 16 and Mendelssohn and Drummond not at 11, we're gonna move on to the workup. During the workup, points will be awarded for prioritization of interventions backed by evidence-based medicine. Points will be deducted for poorly defensible workups or treatments. So as a recap, this is an eight-month-old male brought in by mom for difficulty breathing and cough for three days. Fever started yesterday uh, and was tactile. Patient had a runny nose, but no vomiting or diarrhea, taking slightly less uh, intake with slightly fewer uh, wet diapers, uh, no COVID contacts. He has eczema, but the vaccines are up to date, and he's otherwise a healthy kid. He's only been receiving acetaminophen and has no allergies. Um, his temperature on, or his repeat vital signs when he arrived back to the room shows a temperature of 38.2, which is taken temporarily. Heart rate is 171. Blood pressure is 98 over 63. Respiratory rate is 75. And his O2 sat is 85% on room air. General, he's a well-developed male. Uh, he's lying still and very tachypnic. Uh, the remainder of his exam is normal except for his tachycardia and his respiratory exam, which is concerning. He has diffuse coarse crackles and wheeze, moderate respiratory distress with subcostal and intercostal retractions and the very beginnings of seesaw respirations. So now you've got this kid uh, historized and physicalized. Uh, so we're going to start working on some interventions. So Jenny, uh, what's your first priority is going to be? If you've got a nurse, a medic, you've got hands that are skilled, what use are you going to put them to? Um, holding the kid down and sucking his nose out really well. <laughs> um, they can go, somebody can be getting oxygen to put on him because that may not be um, all the fix he needs, but sucking his nose out is going to make a big difference. So I want to re-see a set of vitals and, and reassess his work of breathing after he's been really well sucked out. It is unbelievable how that comes before IV O2 monitor, <laughs> nose suction. I can't really fit N in ABCs. It doesn't fit the ABCs. You can take off points for that. <laughs> no, but you're correct in this point. So I can't take off points for exactly what the right thing is. It's the very first thing you do is try to suck this kid's nose out and see what happens. Um, so I'll ask the panel real quick. Is this a kid that you would immediately put an IV in? No. no, no, no. Everybody agrees. So not a kid that immediately needs an IV, a kid that uh, would first uh, need some suction. Um, would you put this kid on oxygen right away? Depends on if they're hypoxic after suctioning and what their work of breathing is. Yep. All right. Any other interventions that would come before suction? I'd actually a big hug. A big hug. <laughs> I would give uh, a dose of Tylenol and Motrin. Uh, yeah. One, uh, to me, it's a test too. If a kid can swallow that in front of me, it gives me kind of their respiratory status. If they're unable to do that and handle that, 
that's an indication of where their breathing is. So, so um, if the, if also, the kid, I'm gonna, if the kid swallows it, they're fine. But if they aspirate and go apneic, then they're probably sicker. Well, it's one of those, right? If the kids are pushing it away, totally miserable and not liking it coming in um, to their mouth, then they, you're like, okay, but, and then you're going to put uh, Tylenol up the butt. I mean, it's a vital sign that you got to treat. It's going to drop the heart rate. Probably the kid will likely feel better as well. Um, so to me, it, it's all a holistic thing. So after suctioning, uh, the child's work of breathing starts to improve. The seesaw respirations are definitely gone. The retractions are less, but still present with intercostal and subcostal retractions. The respiratory rate has come down to about 50 to 60. Um, and the kids' sats have now risen up to 90% on room air. Uh, so next round of interventions, what's your next plan going to be for this kid? Can I ask what the mental status is like now? Yes. So kid hated your intervention, hated, okay, screamed and coughed and cried, and now absolutely hates us all as healthcare providers. That's a good sign. That's a great sign. So excellent job. Uh, always got to recap the mental status. So what's your next intervention going to be? I get an x-ray. I'll be honest. I get an x-ray and I would probably, I know... Some people may not like this, but I give lots of people a first time NEB just to see how they do. Um, because I don't know if this is a reactive airway disease and if it, a NEB is not gonna hurt any child, uh, single albuterol I don't think has caused, you know, codes <laughs> or anything from this. So I would get an X-ray cause I don't know if there's a pneumonia. I don't know if this is like a kid who's got some underlying lung disease that mom didn't tell us about. Um, and so I would get an x-ray the first time they've had this problem and I would get, uh, a, a neb and I would see how they are after that. That'd be the next two things. All right. So x-ray across the board. Who's getting an x-ray? I am. I'm on the fence. <laughs> Can't be on the fence. This is yes or no. X-rays coming. They're here. They got a plate or else they're moving to the next COVID room. I mean, the likelihood you have anything positive on your chest x-ray without any asymmetric breath sounds is pretty low. Um, and that's been studied, actually. And here's, here's your evidence-based medicine. 2016 child all predictors of airspace disease on chest x-ray in ED patients with clinical bronchiolitis. That being said, um, this kid is febrile and tachycardic and it's smidge hypoxic. So I think most clinical providers would still be concerned for a pneumonia or a viral bronchopneumonia of some kind to determine whether or not they need to consider antibiotics. So clinically, I would probably lean towards yes, even though I know that's probably not exactly the right answer. Well, it's only if the wrong answer if we know what the diagnosis is. <laughs> you know, it's easy to say that <laughs> if we knew what it was, but in this patient, to me, it's undifferentiated. The SATs were down in the 80s. Um, you know, I'm probably... If, if that's the case, I probably am going to lean more to admitting the kid versus if the kid sat was 92 to 95 and had the same presentation, I would not get an x-ray. But the sat dropped a lot more. The vital signs were more abnormal. I would do a little bit more in this patient because of that. Well, and to kind of piggyback on what Brian is saying, um, I think we're all probably on the, the 
we all think this kid probably has bronchiolitis, which is a clinical diagnosis and a clinical syndrome. And so we know the etiologies of bronchiolitis are many. And so what this kid presents with is a work of breathing and appearance and a circulation clinical syndrome. We, we still want to know what is causing it and whether or not that's a viral process or a bacterial one in order to appropriately treat them. So a chest x-ray, I don't think is necessarily wrong, although the in the large studies, it hasn't been shown to be completely beneficial when you look at the risk of radiation compared to the benefit of actually finding an infiltrate. I mean, getting x-rays definitely correlates with giving more antibiotics, but I mean, most of those x-rays, I feel like show a viral, very bronchial, very high sort of thing so i mean i'm on the fence uh certainly like i'll give a kid a kid a pass for one low sat when their nose is super full of snot he desats again i'm probably getting an x-ray that 90 percent is like right on the fence you know so if he starts perking up and breathing easier awesome if you know if he does anything funny x-ray throw some o's on him get him admitted I think it's reasonable uh, to get an x-ray on this kid who is hypoxic. It's got some evidence-based literature behind it that if you've got hypoxemia, that's one of the only things that will really correlate to actually having airspace disease. But Jenny brings up an excellent point that does airspace disease mean bacterial pneumonia or does it mean that you've got uh, the RSV? So speaking of the RSV, uh, who wants to get a rapid, a rapid flu or rapid RSV on this child? If we're admitting this kid and we're cohorting the children to know that that's what they have from a viral shedding standpoint, I would. But if this kid goes home, then it's a test that costs money and it's a nice to know, but it's not entirely necessary. RSV, I almost rarely order. I think Vivian's right. If you're going to admit them and they need isolation or cohorting, that would be a reason. If they're going home, there's no reason to do it. In flu, I almost never test for, for the same reason, because there's no treatment for it. And I just tell them they have the flu and I tell them to go home and take care of themselves just like everyone's doing right now. And no one listens because they're sheep. And, you know, it has to change your management. So the knowledge that this child has uh, has uh, RSV versus that they have parainfluenza versus that they have human metanumavirus does nothing for your management. So I'd argue it's not going to make a big difference. The one case it would make a big difference is that hypothetical three-week-old, in which case you may be able to say that that child has a source. Uh, but uh, that literature is still kind of in question. Uh, you may be able to do less uh, if they're younger. But I agree. I think in this kid, probably not going to be super beneficial to us in the ED. If you admit this kid and the inpatient service wants it, so be it. But it doesn't need to come back right away to change your management. So on a similar vein, uh, urinalysis. We have an eight-month-old that comes in with a fever and they're huffing and puffing. Does this child need a urinalysis? No. This child is a boy. If they're circumcised or uncircumcised would be a question. But quite frankly, there's a very obvious source, so it's not a fever of unknown origin. I'm, I'm unlikely to check it. Not, not with that clear a source. There is a well-described co-infection of RSV and UTIs. Um, that if you're going to have a bacterial infection while you have RSV bronchiolitis, it's most likely going to be a UTI. But does that necessarily mean that all RSV patients 
need to be screened for UTIs. What would make you screen this child for a UTI? Blood in the diaper. <laughs> I would no, I'm serious. Like, the child abuse. <laughs> well, no, but like, you know, peeing blood, there's a little bit of blood, like a hemorrhagic cystitis. I mean, mm -hmm. you're going to have to have something like, I don't know, you're going to give me something really good, but because I am not interested in cathine and an eight-month-old boy for a respiratory illness. Fever of 39 and a half? I don't I'm, care. I'm more, I mean, if this kid had a history of it and was being followed by a pediatric nephrologist and had all the anatomic studies done yeah. that showed there were anatomic concerns for recurrent UTIs as part of that history, maybe, but with the clean past medical history and no previous UTIs and you have a good source, I wouldn't. Right. I don't know. Just 39 a and sick looking, um, I might be more inclined to do it. But this kid with a low grade temp who's pretty vigorous, like, nah. There, there just is not like a super rush to diagnose UTI in children. There is not like if you don't diagnose at day one or day two, it's not like they all are on dialysis by age 18. I mean, we, we have to take a step back and we're very aggressive, I think, with caffeine in general. And I think that's probably inappropriate to hold children down and force a catheter in their bladder, especially when they're not potty trained. Um, I think that's a very excessive procedure that we probably should back off on what we're doing and give it a couple days. It's not like you can't do it a couple days later and make that assessment. If the kid's fine, then they don't need anything. If they still persist with symptoms or you're like five days of fever or, or they're having um, other symptoms, yeah, that's reasonable. But the aggressiveness early, I, I would really go against that. And there are other methods. We don't have to skip straight to a CAF UA. There are other other ways to, to go about this, that uh, there's a step-by-step -step protocol. There's a couple other methods. They take a while, but I think I agree in this child that uh, they don't necessarily scream urinary tract infection. Uh, if they did, we would be getting that and saying, well, in addition to your urinary tract infection, that is your obvious source, you also might have bronchiolitis uh, instead of going the other way around. Um, so, uh, we'll move on to some of the treatments that were recommended. So Brian says he likes to give a single dose of albuterol. And so Brian, what do you do with this single dose of albuterol to determine whether or not albuterol is uh, the answer to this child's problems? I'm just looking for an improvement. I mean, the kid has a history of eczema and mom had asthma. And so, you know, you got to stay broad still. So kids have reactive airway disease at eight month old from a URI. And so if I can get, um, you know, the oxygen sap may come up a little bit, we open up, we decrease some of the mucus and, you know, crap that's in the uh, airways and the kid is looking and feeling better from that, that would lead me more towards a reactive airway disease uh, process as opposed to if I, bronchiolitis, I know it doesn't work in, but some kids with bronchiolitis go on to have asthma and some kids with bronchiolitis um, also, you know, there's, you don't know it's bronchiolitis until you clinically diagnose it later because nothing seemed to work in their oxygen. So, you know, it's hard. And that, so a first time single neb is not unreasonable. In my opinion, it doesn't take a lot, you know, the side effects and harms are very low. And if you get some benefit, sure. If it doesn't work, no, you know, no harm, no foul. 
it's not like a three hour course of treatment. I mean, you'll get an answer in 20, 30 minutes. So I mean, with, uh, with these albuterol treatments, uh, do you, uh, you see these patients on the inpatient side, uh, do you see harm from these treatments when we give them to kids? I mean, no. <laughs> um, I mean, sometimes they help, sometimes they don't. Um, but yeah, I don't, I mean, for a single dose of albuterol, I don't really think there's any harm to it. A lot of uh, what I hear from the inpatient side is sometimes the parents think that they need to be admitted for these treatments. And sometimes the parents, uh, sometimes you'll get some transient hypoxemia with some of these albuterol treatments that might take a kid that was previously okay. Uh, and now, uh, well, now we're worried because their SATs dropped and now they need to be admitted, uh, which is more a principle of how bronchiolitis responds uh, when you start perfusing some of these dead space areas. So the harm may not be, as Brian mentioned earlier, mortality, uh, but it might be unnecessary hospitalization. Some of the other factors uh, that can kind of come into play here. Um, so the other, uh, go for it, Vince. So, sorry, the other thing I was going to say too, um, I agree with everything you said, that we, you always have to reassess a patient after every intervention. So as a bronchodilator and a stimulant, it does make your heart rate go up. So this kid's already tachycardic. Um, we haven't talked about a trial of oral hydration yet, but with insensible losses due to increased work of breathing, there's going to be some component of hypovolemia that is a component of this kid's illness that needs to be cared for. So knowing that the kid's going to become a little tacky with the albuterol, you just have to be mindful that you're going to probably need to push more oral fluids to catch up a little bit and that your tachycardia is expected. It should not be a trigger for adding to the admission call per se. So now on to oral rehydration. So you're going to tell the nurse, tell the mom that this kid needs to quote PO challenge. What does that mean for you? What is a successful PO challenge that has a uh, child has passed versus a kid who has failed a PO challenge in this eight month old. Brian, I see you smirking. Well, I, I don't PO challenge anybody. I'll be <laughs> to me, a PO challenge is done at home um, where they're comfortable and happy. You know, unless I'm so worried, but it's, you know, it's even like we give um, someone comes in with vomiting. Well, they're not excessively vomiting. They vomited a few times, they're a little dehydrated. You give them a medicine to decrease that vomiting and you give them a chance, you know, like how long do you wait? Like an hour, two hours, six hours? I I just feel it's it's excessive, right? How do we really know? They're going to vomit again. They're going to have trouble breathing again. Um, so I tell them to go home and if they're not peeing in the next eight to 12 hours, they come back. Um, because most people would rather do that at home in the comfort and have some, you know, I may give them a popsicle to leave, but that's about so you it. Put, you put this a lot more on parental comfort with how the child is. Vivian, how about you? Um, what's a PO challenge look like to you? I think for this kid in particular, given the work of breathing, I want to be sure this kid can maintain a semblance of hydration um, and maintain their I, guess, their, I guess, their maintenance fluid intakes every day. I mean, there's no concomitant vomiting or diarrhea that makes me think they're going to lose more, but this kid's a nasal breather. And if the nasal passages are completely occluded, which we know since they got suction and got all this stuff out, they're going to have to have a good parental comfort for nasal suctioning at home in addition to adequate intake so that they don't become dehydrated and need to come back. So in the ED, I kind of agree with Brian. I mean, 
what's a successful PO challenge? Can they take a bottle? Can they latch for breast milk at this point? Sure. But more importantly, is this going to be someone who can do it repeatedly throughout the day and not become fatigued because of their work of breathing and doing it? You don't, you won't necessarily know that during the ED visit because that's a time constraint. Jenny, what about for you? Yeah. I mean, this is actually one that I, that I might try to get to eat in the ED because sometimes these kids like want to eat, but their nose is so, um, full of snot that like they grab the bottle, they take like one suck and then they just push it away. Cause they just can't do it. They just get frustrated because they can't breathe. Um, and so the kids that aren't like interested in eating at all, like aren't going to be able to maintain it at home. Um, so I don't know. I mean, doing it one time, I mean, everything's so fake in the ED, you know, cause we suck their nose out with, with our great device. And then we're like, here, you know, optimal circumstances eat. And then we feel good about ourselves when they eat fine. And go home. Well, the other, the other thing too, I think this, the PO challenge you get in the historical um, context, right? If I've asked, if I'm seeing this patient, I would have asked, how are they feeding today? And if the patient was latching on and feeding, you know, with bottle or breast, I know kind of that they're probably going to continue that, you know, cause that was the course of the day versus, you know, they haven't really been feeding much. Um, I haven't changed a wet diaper. Okay. That's a different thing. Now I, I kind of know. So that's where I'm not trying to be callous about the PO challenge, but it's, to me, it's a historical component and not something I have to do uh, in the ER. You may want to start to do it, but I don't keep them indefinitely for it. So I very much agree. I think that the idea of the, the PO challenge uh, is something that you have to have uh, in your mind. We have a clinical diagnosis and we've got a clinical decision we have to make. And you can boil it down to uh, what I've done in the past for parents who are very insistent about getting an IV and I'm trying to barter with them out of it. And I tell them, look, if your kid required an IV, I would give them 10 mLs per kilo for a bolus, 10 to 20. And so here's 10 mLs per kilo orally. And if you can drink 10 mLs per kilo, you don't need the bolus. And if they don't drink 10 mLs per kilo, then they can, uh, then, then we'll do the IV. And I'll kind of make those deals with them. And more often than not, I win. Uh, but it's a good idea of like understanding what a good PO challenge is and what a bad PO challenge is and understanding what's going to make your determination of whether or not to give this child an IV. So I'll ask the group again, what is going to make you give this child an IV, Brian? I think decreased urine output over the day, historically not feeding well. Um, I've suctioned them nasally. It's feeding time and they're not interested in the bottle. Um, that would be more of an indication. And also for giving an IV to this kid, I'm committing myself more to an admission would be kind of, you know, with most of, um, these patients, again, I would, they kind of go hand in hand to me. If I'm having to IV hydrate this for a respiratory cause, I'm probably going to need to keep you in the hospital unless I've totally reversed your respiratory cause. And if I have totally reversed your respiratory cause, you probably would be able to take oral and you won't need the IV. So I mean, unfortunately it goes hand in hand. I'm not being like, I have to commit to it, but that would be my trend. 
Jenny, what's going to make you stick an IV in this kid? What about the kid's time in the emergency department will make you go, nope, this kid's not going to fly. You need an IV. Um, I mean, I agree with Brian. I think if, if this kid. I'll give Brian the points. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I think if this kid. I mean, the two main reasons why kids get admitted for bronchiolitis are need for oxygen and need for hydration. If they can't maintain those things at home, then they need to come in. And so if this kid hasn't been maintaining at home, you know, and is not, you know, in spite of our interventions, doesn't look like they're going to be able to continue to maintain it at home, then they're, then bring them in for hydration, even if they don't have an oxygen requirement. Usually those things go hand in hand. Usually the kid is snotty enough that they need a little bit of oxygen and, and some IV fluids. Um, but, but sometimes it can be one or the other. So, uh, with the pediatric, uh, bronchiolitis guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics that they published in 2014, essentially it was a big book of no, um, which is, uh, no, uh, no, uh, pulse oximetry monitoring, uh, no, uh, albuterol, no epinephrine, no steroids, no, 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 no. Um, and I think that for most patients, that's fine. But the two things I'm going to ask about, one of them is sick bronchiolitis. And the other is the period of pulse ox monitoring that I think a lot of people do in the emergency department. So Jenny, for a lot of, uh, on the wards, they're recommending doing uh, spot pulse oximetry and not trending these kids with continuous pulse oximetry overnight and uh, just all through the day because they find they have one transient drop and then recover real fast. And uh, those kids end up staying an extra day in the hospital when maybe they would have been able to deal with that fine at home. Uh, do you trend the pulse ox in the emergency department while you're monitoring these kids or do you do spot pulse oximetry? I usually keep them on a pulse ox. I, I feel like that's one of my biggest determinants of whether they're staying or going. So, and it's just to have it on them the whole time is such an easy thing, you know, so I, I don't have to, so I, frankly, so I don't have to circle back quite as often. So I have that continuous number. Um, and yeah, I think it's different when they're already admitted and um, you're, you're at that point trying to um, sort of those spot checking is, you know, do they look well or unwell? Um, but they have, they have, I don't know. I mean, before I send them away, I want, I want a more sure answer of do they need it or not? Um, I, I want to jump in on that actually. I think in the I was ED, going to ask you to. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think in the ED, we are actually clinically based on what we're doing and seeing people and seeing multiple people in the ED, we're spot checking. So keeping a kid on a continuous pulse ox is easy in the room because they keep them affixed to the monitor and that transmits to our telemonitor, which is in our charting room. So when we think about running our list and looking at our patients, we are actually spot checking. I'm not standing outside the room and looking at their set. I'm looking at the telemonitor or walking by to check their clinical status. And that's when I'm spot checking their set. And the other thing I wanted to comment on is, you know, Jenny mentioned it's easy to keep a pulse ox on a kid. And for a lot of kids, it's not. And quite frankly, if that kid doesn't like that pulse ox and they're trying to rip it off their finger or, or their toe, that tells me more about their clinical status being positive. And then I 
care a lot less about their set because they're vigorous and they're active and they're participating and they recognize that there's a sticky thing they hate that they don't want on their toe. So in a sense, I, th- I feel like we're almost spot checking just by definition because of the task switching that we're doing in the ED. And I actually, I agree with you about that, about the, if the kid that can pull all of our interventions off um, probably doesn't need it. I say the same thing all the time about like end title on a kid, like a kid that comes in for an ingestion and we throw an end title on them. Like if they're vigorous enough to rip that off their face, they're probably not going to go apneic. You know, the same thing with the kid that's ripping that, that pulse ox probe is, is pretty vigorous and unlikely to be hypoxic. Um, So Jenny, I'll have you kind of uh, round out uh, with this because this is what you do in Peds Critical Care for the sick bronchiolytics. They don't fall into the guidelines. If you look under the guidelines about, well, what do I do with the really sick bronchiolitis? It says off guidelines. So uh, treatments, NEBS, steroids, is everything fair game at this point? Um. NEBs certainly, um, I think are fair game, at least a trial of them, like try, try some albuterol, see if it helps reassess them, you know, assess them before and after and see, see how that helped. Um, steroids are unlikely to use unless they have a super strong history in the past. Like if they've had multiple prior wheezing episodes, um, and they are super responsive to the albuterol, then maybe I'll give them steroids, but that's, that's the least likely to, to, to be helpful. I think. Albuterol or epinebs? Um, either, both. Um, you know, if this kid is circling the drain, try them all, but usually I ask for albuterol first. That's just personal. Any of you guys use, um, oxymetazolam or, um, phenylephrine drops in these kids? Nope. Usually. I have used it before. Aaron, do you? I don't. And I'm pretty sure there's literature to show that it doesn't help and might cause harm. So yeah, there's some articles both ways mm-hmm. on it. Um, I think there, there's like an Iranian study in 2014. And then there's another study um, before it showed minimal benefit. But mm-hmm. I know it's been talked about, especially if they really mucousy, um, you know, tons of nasal secretions and you're almost thinking that that's the plugging, uh, source, but yeah, I just, I didn't, I've seen people do it. I've tried it occasionally, but, um, want to know if you guys use that as part of your armamentarium of to use nothing. <laughs> what a great disease. The first rule of medicine is do no harm. The first rule of bronchiolitis is first do nothing. Uh, No, it's suction, 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 suction. So uh, we've suctioned this kid. Uh, We uh, declined on all the other imaging and what everybody wanted. We didn't get any blood work. Um, And, uh, you know, with this kid who's still tachycardic, still has some intercostal and subcostal retractions, still has an O2 sat that's at 90 to 92, um, what are the maybe non-medical determinants that are going to help you decide whether or not this child needs to be admitted? What are some of the maybe social or uh, hospital factors or anything else aside from just pure hydration, suction, oxygen? The fact that our ICU is full of COVID right now. 
Well, there's that. But I think that's important. I mean, looking at your hospital system as a whole, um, you know, is this someone, say you don't have a, a PEDS hospitalist or a PEDS ICU at your hospital, um, are you going to transfer this kid? How far are you going to transfer this kid? You know, those are real uh, questions. And I think that would um, come into my decision making, how comfortable the parents are, who's at home. Is it one parent, two parents, uh, are there siblings? So the more social support, uh, the more you're able to get them home. I think uh, if I was in the Kaiser system, they actually send kids home with oxygen. So they tolerate lower levels of um, uh, oxygen sats that they're willing to send home because they can provide uh, in-home oxygen. And it'll be interesting after, you know, with COVID, I think, will we change our mindsets and reset ourselves in terms of what we determine is hypoxemia, as we've seen? And what things would we be able to get home oxygen for other conditions on a more ready um, basis? And is that going to become more of our standard practice? Um, but it's, it's an interesting thing. And then just looking at them in general, does the kid seem better in the ER course or do they seem worse? If they seem better, I'm trying to get them home. If they are not improving or worsening, um, like your respiratory rate went from 35 to 75, then I would keep them more likely in the hospital. I never thought in a million years I would be comfortable looking at a SAT of 75% in an adult on a non-rebreather and just go, well, all right, <laughs> let's do this again. I guess we'll get wait for RT to get here. Uh, it's unbelievable. Jenny, any, any other kind of extraneous factors that will help you determine whether a kid stays or goes? No, I, I think... Um, I think all that stuff makes sense. I think if the, if it's a weekday and they have a PCP and they have good reliable parents, and this is like a well-looking kid, I am. And you talk about um, the expected course of bronchiolitis and the parents seem to understand and they understand what to bring them back for. This is a kid that I may send home with a respiratory rate of 60 um, as long as they're happily sucking down their bottle and looking like a champ and blowing little snot bubbles at me and cooing. But like if this kid, um, you know, lives an hour and a half away mm -hmm. or if the if like you said, um, if if admission transfer to a different facility um, that's a kid that I may watch for a little bit longer, do a little bit more of a PO challenge, do a little bit more, you know, see what their, their oxygen's like when, you know, their sats when they sleep, you know, that sort of thing, just sort of the further away they have to go, um, the, the more likely I am to like watch them a little bit longer. Yeah. I was going to say the one, the thing that throws me is whether or not they have access to a vehicle or a car for transport. And if they are one of our more rural patients, especially down here, what their critical hospital access is like and their EMS system. So if they know they can call an ambulance, but they're going to end up taking them to a hospital that can't handle peds or doesn't know how to, then I'm more inclined to admit them. Elevation matters too, because if we're selling, sending them to a place that's several thousand feet higher, that 90% is going to be lower. So thank you, everybody, for uh, excellent discussion on bronchiolitis. Uh, so Dr. Mendelson and Dr. Ng are knotted up at 27 now. So we are going to enter them into the DISPO. During the DISPO, points are awarded for a concise and convincing admission call or a clear layperson-level discussion of the discharge instructions. 
Admission calls should be top-down with the most important information first, riding the fine line between overselling and underselling the admission. Discharge instructions should include shared decision-making, follow-up instructions, and explicit return precautions. And, of course, evidence-based medicine is always welcome. All right, so Dr. Ng, you are going to be admitting this patient to the floor. Uh, Mom lives an hour and a half away. She's not very comfortable with how the kid is breathing right now. Feels like the kid might be a little bit better, but certainly much different from baseline, and she does not feel comfortable going home. So the hospitalist is on the phone for you now. Hi, this is Dr. Pete's hospitalist. Oh, hey, Dr. Pete's hospitalist. How are you tonight? Uh, I'm getting crushed right now with all of these bronchiolytics. So what's going on? Oh, it is the season. Uh, I'm very sorry about that, but I would like to admit another eight-month-old, otherwise healthy young boy for clinical bronchiolitis to your service, please. Okay. Yeah. So he's on day three of illness. Mom brought him in for some increased work of breathing and some fever. Um, initially, he was febrile tachycardic and hypoxic and with some appropriate suctioning. The hypoxia seemed to improve just a smidge and the work of breathing did as well. But he's still waffling between about 88, 90% on room air. Um, he's been able to feed a little bit, but mom's just really uncomfortable because he's nodding in as much. He's got some uh, continued mild respiratory symptoms with increased work of breathing. And she lives a fair amount away, about an hour and a half or so, and at elevation and doesn't really have access to critical access care. So she's just a little uncomfortable ensuring that he's going to maintain his hydration at home, uh, especially with his breathing pattern as it is right now. Um, all right. So kind of a kind of an on the fence kid. Um, do you have any labs or anything? Does this kid need an IV? Um, no, so we did not get any laboratory studies. I opted to attempt some oral challenge to see if this kid would be able to maintain their own hydration at home. He's done okay, but I wouldn't be, I wouldn't say he's been completely successful. He's taken a little bit of the bottle, but not so much that I would personally be comfortable sending him back. And he's had a little bit of decreased urine output throughout the day as well. Um, I, I, did you get an x-ray? Does he have a pneumonia or something? Nope. So he's a fully vaccinated kid. Um, and per the AAP guidelines, there really wasn't any indication to get a chest x-ray on here on, on this kiddo. He didn't have any asymmetric breast sounds that made me concerned. And clinically, he's a pretty classic definition of bronchiolitis. Wow. You're the first emergency doctor to quote the AAP bronchiolitis guidelines to me. That's pretty good. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's just, it's hard. This kid doesn't really meet admission criteria. I mean, what am I going to do for this kid on the floor if we admit him? Well, I think this kid does meet admission criteria. He's a little bit hypoxic and um, a triage sat less than 95% has been shown to be a predictor of worsening morbidity in kids. Um, the fact that this kid also has uh, continued retractions as well as some decreased oral intake or have also been shown to be clinical predictors for escalated care. So taking into account the social situation and the fact that this mom can't get to a hospital should this kid develop respiratory failure makes me more inclined to admit this kid for safety reasons. Uh, all right. I guess that sounds good. And I guess we can always add in those other interventions or tests if we need to. Okay. I'll go ahead and admit them. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. All right. Excellent job. Dr. Mendelson, uh, it's your turn to discharge this patient who is now doing well and mom does not live an hour, hour and a half away. She lives just down the street. She has access. She does feel comfortable going home, but uh, is still uh, a little curious about uh, you know, what the expected course is. 
so go ahead and give mom your uh, best discharge instructions for this child. All right. Well, you know, after we've done a few things here in the ED, um, your child's looking a little better than when he came in. His oxygen level has, and we've been watching it on the monitors and it's staying in the safe range. Um, and, you know, overall his, his effort with his breathing is looking better. So we think it's safe for you guys to go home. That being said, there's a few things you need to watch out for. Um, just like any viral illness, um, one of the biggest things that you can do to help him to feel better is keeping his fever down. So you can alternate Tylenol and ibuprofen, and we'll give you the right doses of those, um, you know, based on his weight today to make sure you can help keep his fever down. You're going to really want to watch how he's eating and drinking and making sure he's staying hydrated because um, that can be a big thing when they're when they're breathing hard, um, they may need a little extra fluids as well. And then, you know, just kind of watching his breathing. So just like um, we did today, um, sucking his nose out is gonna is gonna make a big difference. Um, you know, obviously you don't have the powered suction off the wall like we do, um, but um, one thing you may wanna, uh, if you don't already have one at home, one thing that I really like to recommend to families is something called a nose Frida. It's a little sucker. Um, so goes in the nose and you actually suck the snot out. Doesn't, doesn't actually go in your mouth. It's a long little tube. Um, but that works way better than the little suction ball thingy. Um, and so that may help you clear his nose out a little bit better. Um, but I want you to watch his breathing and watch his eating and, and if things are looking worse instead of better, um, don't be afraid to bring him on back, you know, either to us or to his, to his regular doctor to check in on him again. Um, so it's okay if he still has a fever for an extra. Yeah, yeah. So he may have a fever for a few days with this. Um, and, um, and, and that's normal with this, with this sort of infection. Um, but, but treating it with, with Tylenol and ibuprofen, um, will help him feel better. What do I do to make his cough go away? Yeah. So there's really no cough medicine that we recommend at this age. Um, all of the cough medicines that, that you can get in a store are actually more harmful than helpful in this age group. Um, so really the best thing that you can do um, is keeping his nose sucked out so he can breathe more easily, but he may cough a little bit. That's okay. All right. Okay. Well, I guess I'll bring him back uh, if he gets any worse. Thank you very much for taking care of him. Thanks to everybody for their participation. In the holiday spirit, I'm going to give everyone two minutes to do their soapbox. Everybody gets to participate. Uh, Dr. Drummond, take it away. I think D-dimer is not a game. When people talk about the, we're playing the D-dimer game, that's not a real thing. D-dimers are used incorrectly by just about all of us. The only reason you should be ordering a D-dimer is you're about to click the button and order a CTPE protocol of somebody's chest. And then all of a sudden you think, oh, if I had a negative D-dimer, would I stop myself from ordering said test? And if that's the case, order the D-dimer. That's the way it should be used. Not as a, well, I don't know, I'll order it now. Because the only point of a D-dimer is to decrease the number of CTPEs that we're ordering. So if you use it wrong, you're only going to increase the number of CTs you're doing. And then you're gonna diagnose someone with a subsegmental PE, you're gonna commit them to anticoagulation, they're gonna fall and bleed and it's gonna be on you because you played a game that shouldn't be a game. I think that's two minutes, D-dimer, use it correctly. 
All right, Dr. Mandelson, Vivian. Uh, okay, so my soapbox today is going to be on spending the time to talk to your patients. And so in today's context with COVID and the fact that we're not spending a lot of time at the patient's bedside, I think that appropriate discharge instructions, as evidenced by this case, appropriate counseling, and what you what a patient should do next, what should they expect, when should they expect their symptoms to resolve, in addition to those return precautions, I think are the one of the most important things that we do in the ED that we don't do well, and that I don't think we teach our residents and our providers to do well. It doesn't take a lot of extra time to actually spend and say, look, you have a viral gastroenteritis. It's going to take a couple of weeks for this to get better. Don't be surprised that your gut's not going to be completely back to normal within three days, and that's a normal thing. And so I think we can do a lot better by talking with our discharge patients and telling them what to expect and telling them when it is appropriate to see their PCPs and when it is appropriate to come back to the ED. I think we've all been there that we've had a lot of bounce back patients for people who have come back with increasing pain. And quite frankly, they come back saying, I wasn't told this. I'm glad you explained that to me. This means a lot of sense. And so you're right. I probably don't need to be here today. And with today's day and age with COVID and our waiting rooms exploding and the fact that the triage effect is trickling down and we're not able to see some of those less sick patients, they still deserve the care that we can give them. And so spend those extra 30 minutes and talk to them and counsel them appropriately with the counseling information and expected management of care that you can give. Great. I'm even going to jump in on this and give my quick rant on bronchiolitis because it's something very near and dear to my heart because it's all about, as Vivian said, return precautions. So when I walk up to the room, I tell the parents after I've done my history and physical and legitimized their reason for coming to the emergency department, I say, yeah, it seems like they have a viral illness, which in adults would probably just give you a cold, but in little kids has made it down into their lungs. And there's three things that we do to treat this. The first is we support their breathing. The second is we make sure they stay well hydrated. And the third is that we make sure that they have enough oxygen. And so we're gonna be checking all these things. Uh, what we're gonna do first is we're gonna come in and we're gonna grab our big wall suction and we're gonna give you a head start on what you're gonna do at home. We're gonna suction out your kid's nose and open up their nasal passages as best as they can so that they can breathe. Um, and then once we do that, they're going to hate it and they're going to cry and they're going to scream and they're going to loosen up all this stuff from their chest as they're crying and screaming and cough it out even more. And what I find is that then kids can suddenly breathe. They're really, really angry and they want a bottle. So why don't you give them something to drink? It soothes them. It makes them feel better. And now when you put the bottle in their mouth, they're going to be able to breathe through their nose for maybe the first time in the last couple days. Uh, and they're going to be vigorously drinking. That's what we want to see. And then the next thing they're going to do is they're going to fall asleep, probably, because we put them through the torture of suctioning out their nose and uh, they're going to fall asleep and we're going to watch them on our oxygen monitor to see if while they're sleeping, which is the time that they're spending the least amount of effort breathing, their oxygen goes down. And if any of those things don't work, then we'll come in and talk about what we're going to do next. But this is the model of what I want you to do at home if they do well. I want you to suction out their nose before they, uh, uh, before they start uh, to feed. And, uh, and then give them the bottle and then watch their breathing afterwards. 
Uh, there's all manner of things we can do to suction this out. There's the little bulb suction, which is kind of the least useful. There's this awesome device called a nose Frida, which you put one end in your mouth, one end in the patient's nose, and then there's a filter in between that's supposed to catch all the snot. If you're willing to use that, you're a better parent than me because I think it's disgusting, but it works really well. If you're a wimp like me, they have battery operated ones you can buy on Amazon and you can even go and buy a replica of essentially what we have here for $200. It depends on how disgusted you are by snot. But there are all ways that you can ramp this up. And even if we were to keep your child in the hospital, this is everything we would be doing for them. Suction, hydration, making sure that their breathing and their oxygen is okay. So if you can do all that stuff at home, then you're already light years ahead of what we would be able to do for them in the hospital. So that's my, bronchial, uh, my bronchiolitis rant. Jenny, why don't you take us home? I just want to say... Um... I mean, my hat is off to our ED team about, I mean, you guys have been working hard uh, for months and months and months and just going above and beyond. And so I just want to say I'm really honored to be a part of this group and not just our group, but, you know, around the country, I think emergency medicine uh, physicians have been like taking it for the team. Um, and it is an honor and a privilege to be a part of this group and, we don't get a lot of thanks, you know, there's a lot of like hero talk that disappears very quickly, but, um, you know, I do, I do feel like, like I'm surrounded by heroes every day. So, uh, so thanks everyone. I have to say again, shout out to our emergency department staff, our doctors, our nurses, our techs, our hucks, our EVS people, and to critical care who is really taking the brunt of this right now to make sure that we can keep the ED flowing. Please uh, uh, look out for your critical care providers, be nice to each other, and we will have a much better 2020. Thanks everyone.